0: Our speaker for this morning is Daryl Whitmer, and I want to introduce him to you as he makes his way up to the, uh, the platform. Um, man, thanks, worship team, too, for leading us. Appreciate you guys. And thank you as well for joining in prayer with us. Daryl Whitmer uh, is the uh, the son of Gene uh, and Ann Whitmer, who've been um, members here ever since one of them was carried in. Is that right? <laughs> yeah ever since Gene was carried in. Uh, Daryl and Mary have been in Monson, Maine for what will be 40 years next year. Some of you are not that old yet, Um, but they've been there in ministry there for that long. Daryl and Mary um, are what we call missionaries from Grace Point Church. There are many of you who have gone every year. We will, uh, it has been every year for a while, send a short-term missions team up there to visit with them, Um, and that. That has been our connection, so now you see the face to the name of Daryl and Mary Whitmer, if you don't know who they are. Uh, Daryl works with uh, an organization called Areopagus to America, or A2A for short, which is what we call an apologetics ministry, defending the Christian faith to those who would have questions about it. I'm sure he'll explain a little bit more about that. Uh, They also have three grown sons and nine grandchildren. Uh, And so we are glad uh, to welcome to our platform this morning, Daryl Whitmer. So, Daryl, welcome to Graceville. Thank you, Pastor Tim.
1: I think the last time that Mary and I were both here together was in May of 2009. Uh, There was one time in between when she was able to come and I was not feeling so well. But that means it's been five and a half years since both of us were here together. And whenever I come to paradise, my first inclination is to say thank you very much for all that you do for us. But then I quickly realize that that may be somewhat presumptuous because you're really doing it for Jesus, and when Leon writes that monthly check from GPC, and when... um, you all come our way and wash our windows and build our bridges and stack our wood and organize and supervise all of these many trips as you have, Dale and Laurie, wherever you are, uh, faithfully for so many years. uh, We fully realize that you're primarily serving Jesus, not us. And because we're in gospel ministry, not just your friends, although you would do it as your friends too, but we're glad to be in the in the middle of that arrangement as the um, as the very grateful intermediary beneficiaries of your service to Christ. And um, you know, I think you could really all write a book on how to care for missionaries—not just for us, but for all of your missionaries. Uh, you have been so faithful in caring for us in so many creative ways for 39 years now that we've been in Maine. With one exception, and that has to do with weed whackers. Uh, do you guys realize that you've burned through three weed whackers in three years? Our weed whackers, personally owned weed whackers. Have they told the rest of you that? No, I didn't think so, uh, but that's the case. And we've got all of our personal weed whackers under lock and key. From now on, either there's not going to be any weed whacking done, or you're going to have to bring your own weed whackers. A bit of an update on the family, and and then our ministry before we look together to God's word. And when I think of family, uh, first I want to mention Mary, who prefers to not be up here this morning, but has remained faithfully behind the scenes and with me for. 41 years of our marriage now, 41 years plus, and for the 30 years that I've been in the wheelchair, she continues to keep me going. If it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't be, probably wouldn't be here this morning, but she buttons my shirt and pulls my pants on, which is really a benefit to you as well as me, because (laughs) it would be a huge (laughs) distraction. And I uh, remember when I was a boy watching, and I also want to mention my folks, because um, isn't it, isn't God great to continue to bless them? In terms of family update, I think I need to mention them because uh, God continues to bless them with, with good, clear minds and the ability to regularly attend services here at Grace Point Church. And I was going to say, when I was younger and sitting here at Paradise, 50 years ago probably... Uh, I remember looking with great respect at those seniors whose wisdom was a lot greater than mine, but that's a clear memory that I have of appreciating and respecting the older folks, and uh, now they are them, they are the older folks, and and I know that you feel the same way about them. So thanks for being a family to them. Uh, Yes, what a difference a decade makes. Ten years ago, Mary and I had three sons, and we thought maybe it was always going to stay that way, but in ten short years, we now have three sons, three daughters-in-law, and nine grandchildren, and the youngest of which is little John Wyatt Whitmer in a hospital in Charlottesville, Virginia this morning, having just come through the second open-heart Uh, procedure in his short six months of living. Uh, John Wyatt was born on May the first and uh, victim of a pretty serious congenital heart defect. So without what they've done already he would not be alive, but uh, he came through this last procedure with one scare. Uh, He coded Friday night and for about two minutes they were doing heart compressions and we didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what was going to happen, but he's with us and recovering as of this morning, so that's good news, and we continue to appreciate your prayers on behalf of Andrew, our son Andrew, and Maureen, and that family in Harris- based in Harrisonburg, although the hospital is in Charlottesville, Virginia. And you know, in terms of praying, I often hear the phrase, prayer works, or prayer changes things, and I know what everybody means when they say that, but I think God doesn't like to share his glory with anyone, so it's God that works. It's God that works, and it's God that changes things, and sometimes not always the way we want, but he's the one to whom we need to give the glory. Our prayers can release his power, but still, it's not prayer that does anything except release his power. Um, Andrew is continues to be a professor of American history at James Madison University in Virginia. And then Stephen, our son, is a senior pastor at Pepperell Christian Fellowship in Pepperell, Massachusetts. Uh, Stephen and Emma have three children, and Stephen just got back a few days ago from about a two-week uh, training mission, training pastors in northern Uganda. And uh, he also this past year published a book called Eternity Changes Everything. I see that it's conspicuously located in the library window out here. Uh, That's good, but no one's reading it when it's in the windows. So I'm sure you didn't put that there just for us. But uh, I I don't get a commission for saying it, but I I think that it will be a great blessing to you. Uh, The title says it all, Eternity Changes Everything. And and, uh, God's used Stephen to put that together and in words. And then our youngest son, Tim and Amy, live in Holton, just south of Holton, Linneus, where they moved this year, and they have three children. And uh, that's right up at the end of I-95. You can't drive any further north on Interstate 95, Holton, and just a few miles south of that in Linneus. So that's a family report. And now a brief update on the ministry. And I, th- I think that it's safe to say that 2014... We incorporated in 91, so after all of these years of ministry, I think this past year has probably been the most significant in terms of the number of engagements and the type of engagements and the continuing uh, development of our network of key leaders and churches for the sake of effective gospel ministry in the liberal cultural climate of New England. Uh, More than ever, we feel that we are strategically located As you probably have seen in all of the polls, including the Pew Foundation study, the New England states, all six New England states, are in the top 10 least religious states in America. And the top four are New England states. In fact, Maine and Vermont uh, are considered, are shown to be the least religious states in America. Lots of nuns, uh, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S that check none when they ask for religious preference, but we feel it in the culture and in the climate so much different than here in Lancaster County. So that's where God's had us now for 39 years, going on 40 next year, and we feel that's exactly where we need to be. Our large focus right now is this coming conference in May of 2016 called Why Jesus 2016. We're going to show a brief video clip in just a second. But I wanna say that this is actually part of a larger initiative that we call the best defense. If the best defense is a good offense, and for three years leading up to the conference, we're taking the offensive for historic Christian truth in northern New England, defined as Vermont, New Hampshire, all of Maine, parts of northern Massachusetts. And the best defense is made up of three components, uh, one of which is these 10 defense training seminars that we're doing in all corners and throughout the geographically dispersed area of northern of the three-state area. So that's underway. We're gonna be doing our sixth one in New Hampshire in just two weeks. We just came back from Bennington, Vermont, way down in the southwestern corner of Vermont and uh, been to Massachusetts earlier in the year and Maine. Uh, We continue to operate the study center. If you're ever coming through Maine, we want you to stop in and and, uh, we'll give you a tour of our study center right there in Monson. Uh, I'm usually on the road speaking at least, Mary and I together, at least once a month. This month it's been three times. Our Defenders event for young people age 17 to 24, uh, equipping them to stand strong for faith, continues in the spring of the year, and we do our spring symposium And our fall forum this year, very interesting, in northern Maine, we met with representatives of the northern Maine Pagan Pride Association. And these four self-pronounced pagans, that's their choice of identification, sat there and all told us a story of how they used to be in evangelical churches, Christian churches, but were disillusioned or given wrong information about what Christianity really is, and as a result, deserted Christianity, or what they thought was Christianity, unfortunately, uh, misunderstood, but opted for something else, and in this case, paganism. Uh, So that just underscores to me the importance of what we're doing in New England and everywhere else. Uh, We also continue to publish our bi-monthly thought letter, which is now being mailed to 8,100 addresses in all 50 states and about 35 countries internationally. Uh, that's not a mega ministry by any means, but we feel like God's given us uh, those folks to whom we can communicate in a simple paper. Many of you receive this thought letter. It goes out two, every two months. And if you don't, we invite you to uh, sign your name on the sheet uh, that's on the table in the back. Out the vestibule, there's a table or a counter there with a number of our materials, no charge for any of them. And because your church here at Paradise contributes regularly, uh, we want you to feel free to sign up and without obligation receive the thought letter. So that's an update on family and ministry. And we do thank you for praying for us in the great ongoing battle for truth. Let's roll the video clip at this point, and in four minutes you'll see—you uh, deserve to see how your funds are being invested—and this is the big initiative that we're uh, doing right now, ramp- ramping up to uh, May of 2016. We can run that.
2: Okay, on May 7, we struggle, Randy, David, Newman, and we hope you. Hello, everyone. I'm Darrell Weber, executive director of the A.K.O. Institute, co-sponsor and coordinator of the truly remarkable event that is coming our way. It is called Why Jesus? 2016. Up today there are hundreds and hundreds of religions and variations of multiple belief systems in the world. How does anyone know what to believe it anymore? Why should anyone even care about what Is there any such thing that's true or false when it comes to religion? Could it all be just a matter of preference? And why not choose science or logic or articles of faith? Doesn't religion only succeed in conflict all over the world anyway? How would you answer questions like these? If you're a Christian, you're going to join thousands of other believers for this one-day, all-day, exceptionally valuable conference on evidence for Christian faith. It's not going to be an entertainment event to kill your senses. It's going to be a training event to challenge your mind, but uh, in a good and awful way. An outstanding team of gifted speakers will be assembly to equip you who can answer the tough questions about matters of faith to make a convincing, incredible case for a historic Christian truth. Meeting and learning and singing together with so many other Christian leaders <coughs> will be an added benefit and to be encouraging and people to be in life. Even if you're a skeptic or a sincere seeker, you're welcome to attend this conference. And no cost to that. Just contact us for details. We hope you will. Well. There are going to be workshops, exhibits, and artful music for thoughtful worship on the Oasis Corral, a totally unique Amish Mennonite octopus in the group of 40 men and women coming together from 10 states in Canada. You're going to be inspired, for sure. And who is a speaker? some of the most distracted, dynamic Christian apologists of our time. Robbie Ted Lee Strobel, Randy David Noonan, Tom Woodward, Kate Cottes, and more. This extraordinary event is scheduled for May 7, 2016, right here in northern New England. Those living in this region of the country usually have to travel long distances for assembly of this hour, but not this time. In 2016, it's our turn to host such a conference. We're doing so a beautiful new multi-million dollar cross insurance center in
0: Vancouver, Maine. We'd like to see the entire 8,000-seater unit filled to capacity that day. Is
2: that really possible? Well, will you be there and help me make it possible? We'll need to make arrangements sooner rather than later. The mission is very affordable, no doubt less than you pay for just one large piece of but affordable means marketable. It be really difficult to get a ticket. Details on all of this, many more frequently asked questions, and lots of promotional materials are available by visiting the website whyjesus 2016org That's whyjesus2016.org. W h 2016org i J-S-U-S-2016.org going to hyjesus 2 0 one 6 0 one 6 0 one 6 Bring one 6 0 one Make phone call reservations now. Get your tickets soon. Call 207 997
1: 3644 or visit JuanJesus2016.org for more information. And we'll see you there. Tickets are going to be $15 a piece and they go on sale in May of 2015. So, you know, it would be great if you all got a caravan and uh, you can view this through the eyes of northern New Englanders, because we don't often have those type of events up our way. But that doesn't exclude anyone from outside coming. So give some thought to, uh, to, to all coming up in a big coach or, uh, or a caravan. Or, hey, you could ride your bikes. A number of you have already <laughs> ridden bikes from Paradise to Monson. And so that's another possibility. Well, the ministry of A2A is a ministry of Christian apologetics, so this morning I'm going to preach a message entitled, Get Ready, Get Set, Go, Talk About Hope, from a text that's often considered the golden text of Christian apologetics, 1 Peter 3.15. I'm going to be commenting on this verse in detail this morning, so you might want to follow along as I recite this 15th verse of the third chapter of the first epistle that Peter wrote to Christians in Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Bithynia, and all of that part of what was then Asia. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being prepared to either give an answer or make a defense, depending on your translation, to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope within you, but do it with gentleness and reverence. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being prepared to give a defense, to give an answer, to make a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence or respect. So we're going to start with the heart of the verse here, which is this little phrase right smack dab in the middle of the text that says, Give an answer. Be prepared to give an answer. King James Version, NIV, or I'm using NASB. make a defense, ESV, make a defense. I think the New Living Translation says explain. When people ask you to explain or give some basis for the hope that you have, uh, then you need to be prepared to do that. And when God breathed out, when God's Spirit breathed out this little phrase, make a defense or give an answer, in this part of the verse to Peter, Peter, who was, of course, writing in Greek, wrote down the word apologia, which is the term from which we get our English term apologetics. So the word apologetics comes directly from God through Peter We can't blame some brainy theologian or Peter for choosing this tough word, apologetics. In fact, I think if Peter had been choosing words, he'd have said, Lord, can't we choose a simpler term? And the Lord's Spirit said, apologetics should be apologia. But in spite of all of that, I think the term apologetics often gets a bad rap today for three main reasons. First of all... This term apologetics has a bad case of the syllables, apologetics, five syllables in fact. And we all know that any five-syllable word is intended for, you know, scholars and theologians and seminarians, not average people. But that's not true. This verse is directed by God's Spirit through Peter to all of us. It's for every Christian. The second reason is that apologetics sounds very much like apologizing. And we all know that Paul also wrote that, Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote that we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, to the Greek. So if we're not to be ashamed of the gospel, then why are we apologizing for the gospel? Uh, if apologetics has to do with apologizing, but Of course, although those two words sound a lot alike, they mean separate things. Apologetics actually involves speaking up for something in which we do believe, and for which we're not at all sorry. So you can, in a a generic sort of sense, be an apologist for anything that you believe in. You can be an apologist for yogurt, um, sweet frog yogurt. Do you have sweet frog yogurts around here? Uh, I, I'd be an apologist for sweet frog yogurt, or uh, apples, or apple macs, or mac apples, uh, or you could even be an apologist for other religions, and many religions have their own apologetics organizations. Uh, you can be an apologist for Buddhism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a very sophisticated apologetics uh, organization, abbreviated FARMS. Then there's a third reason for the fact that apologetics often gets a bad rap, and that's because people often tend to associate this word, apologetics, with either debating or arguing, and most people think I'm not very good at that, I don't even wanna be good at that, and so why should I care about apologetics? And yet the truth is, apologetics does not involve arguing. Look at the very last phrase, of this verse. It says that when we apologia, when we give our answers or when we make our defense for hoping in Jesus, we're to do so gently and with respect. No argumentative spirit, no cocky spirit, no one upmanship, no holier-than-thou attitude, no pushiness, just quiet, confident but humble respect. Uh, some time ago, I came home from the study center in the evening, and Mary said, check this letter to the editor in the, one of our local papers. So I read this letter that some fellow had written from not too far from Monson, implying that all Christians are really a little bit numb intellectually. He didn't say it quite that blatantly, but that was the clear message, that especially compared to scientists who are critical thinkers, uh, that's just not true of Christians. One of the reasons he said why science should be allowed in the school, but not any other view of faith-based view. So I decided to do what I don't often do, and that's write a letter to the editor myself in which I invited this guy to come sit down with me at the study center for an hour or so, so that I could hopefully convince him that Christians can also be critical thinkers. I sweetened the deal with an offer to pick up the tab at Spring Creek Barbecue in Monson, uh, one of our favorite restaurants right in Monson. If you ever come to Monson, you need to uh, stop in at Spring Creek Barbecue. So for whatever reasons, whether it was that or else otherwise, he accepted the invitation to his credit. And we picked a date. He got a cold, so we had to postpone it. But eventually, he came into the study center, sat down, and for two hours, we had a good discussion. And I think for the first time, he met someone who, as a Christian, could hold their own in a discussion about matters of faith and evidence for faith. Uh, in fact, I let him do most of the talking, and I began by saying, Patrick, you know, how did you come to know about Christianity, or what connection have you ever had with Christians? And he told me a story about how when he was in college, one of his roommates, was I think it was his only roommate, had just accepted Christ, and for the next month, day after day, week after week, he was badgering him to become a Christian, and oftentimes with arguments and evidence that were a bit questionable and not so convincing. It turned him off. I don't know if this roommate's life was consistent with his witness, but I do know that when people do not see any difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, when it comes to how we live, or how we talk, or how we spend money, or what we watch, or what we laugh at, or what, we, what jokes we think are funny, uh, then all of our Christian talk is going to seem a little phony. I think it was Gypsy Smith who once said, there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the only one that most people will ever read is you. M- Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you, and the only one that most people will ever read is you. So look at the first phrase of this verse. It says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, if I'm not following Christ as Lord, then anything else that I'm going to say about Christian faith or Christian hope is going to ring hollow. If TV is my God, if sports is my God, if money is my God, if work or my hobby, is what I give my time and effort and priority to in all of life. If any of these things rule my life, then my apologia is going to be compromised. Here's a key point. Check this one. My living relationship to Jesus is going to be the most important part of any defense that I will ever try to make for Christian truth. It's not quick, snappy, tricky answers. The most powerful answers that I will ever give to anyone who asks me about the basis for my hope will be my example, my genuine, authentic example of living for Christ, my priority for Christ, my trust in Christ. So, have we, have you ever set apart Christ? Do you set Christ apart as Lord, is he uniquely your commander-in-chief and your hope in all of life? You can only have one Lord, ultimately. Edward Mote was a very well-loved 19th-century Baptist minister, and at one point he sat down with a pen and wrote these words. My hope, he wrote, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then Edward Mote put down his pen and went out and lived that in all of his life. He was the real deal. He was authentic. He practiced what he preached. He was a great model of hoping in Christ, and his congregation loved him for it. In fact, they loved him so much that at one point, they actually took a vote to deed the church property itself over to him personally. I don't know why they thought that he would want to own the church building, and in fact, he didn't. He said, I don't need that. Uh, my hope is in Christ. My hope is all, uh, Jesus is all I need. The second verse of his hymn, of his, the hymn that he wrote, says, When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace In every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Sometimes the great storms of life roll in on us. Health problems, some sort of financial pressure, stress, loneliness, grief or loss fear i really appreciated the opening praise course because i don't know what the title of it was but it included all of these themes about hope and fear and trusting in jesus said it in other words how do you handle fear by the way how do we handle fear this first letter from peter was addressed to christians living in very fearful conditions as your pastor made clear back in July when he was preaching through this series in 1 Peter, uh, Pastor Tim, in a very excellent message that day, um, which I've listened to a number of times, uh, made it clear that at this time that Peter was writing these words, the terrible Roman persecution of Christians was ramping up. The reign of the evil emperor Nero was imminent. I mean, you talk about ISIS, you talk about terrorism and beheadings and torture, Uh, Nero wrote the book on it, nothing that we're reading in our headlines uh, that he hadn't already thought about. Peter is writing here to Christians facing these very intimidating circumstances. And in verses 14 and 15, he says, don't be troubled. What? Don't be frightened. Don't fear what others fear. Verses 14 and 15, he says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Sanctify Jesus as Lord. He is your hope. Realize that he is Lord. It's not the Roman government that's in charge. It's God who is sovereign in all of life. Christ is your hope. Hope in Christ. No, there are two kinds of hope. There's blind hope, and then there's well-grounded hope. If I told you that I was hoping to make the 2018 Winter Olympics team in figure skating in South Africa, you would say, that sounds probably like a fairly groundless hope, unless circumstances change for you. And I would agree. But if I was to say, I hope to return, Mary and I hope to return to Maine later this week, you'd say, well, if that's the plan and you've done it before and you have the van going and all, then that's a pretty well grounded hope. One kind of hope is just wild wish upon a star aspiration, the other kind of hope is confident, realistic expectation. I've asked many people what they think is going to happen when they die and oftentimes people will say something like, well, I've tried to live a good life, I've tried to be as good as I know how, so I'm just gonna hope for the best. That sounds like wild, baseless hope to me, sort of like saying, I hope to win the lottery, or I hope I'll never catch another head cold. Here in 1 Peter 3.15, when Peter talks about others asking us Christians about our hope, he uses a term that literally means joyful, and confident expectation, not wishful thinking. There's a solid basis for our hope. Our hope is based on a faith that's based on good evidence and our hope is based on a person. That's something different. Jesus himself is our hope. Our hope is in the Lord. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay on Christ, the solid rock I stand. When, um, when the waves and the storms come in on us, and if it's a crisis, a health crisis or whatever, it's Jesus who is our rock. We have the promises of a God whose existence, for whose existence there's much evidence. We have a Bible, the supernatural origin and reliability for which there is much evidence. There is Jesus himself whose claims and identity are all grounded in good, solid evidence. So when people ask us about our hope, we need to be prepared and do our homework to show them some of these lines of evidence. Show them that our hope is well-grounded expectation. Are you able to do that? Are you, uh, have you spent time preparing some of those lines of evidence and getting familiar with at least the basics? Nabil Qureshi was born in 1983. He is, he was, he is the oldest son of devout Muslim Pakistani immigrants. Nabil Qureshi grew up here in America, living and breathing Islam. I think he was born in California. His father was part of the US Navy, so they moved to Virginia Beach at one point. They lived in Ireland for a while, but he was born and raised here in the US, although he was Muslim. And he was just bathed in Islamic theology. When he was just minutes old, his father leaned over to him, over him and whispered in his ear the Adhan, the Muslim call to prayer. He was brilliant, very brilliant. His mother would hold him on his lap and read the Koran to him and have him memorize it. Nabil Qureshi memorized the entire Quran before he was six years old. All 114 surahs, chapters. And he continued to be brilliant. In his teen years in high school, he was a strong proponent of Islam. He could out-debate the rest. And then he went to college, Old Dominion University in Virginia. And when he was in college, he met a guy by the name of David Wood, An evangelical Christian who loved the Lord and who loved Nabil, and they became best friends. And David loved Nabil unconditionally. He wanted to win him to Christ, but he wasn't going to stop loving him if he didn't come to Christ. And David very faithfully and very effectively shared the basis for Christian hope to Nabil, which got Nabil who was naturally inquisitive anyway, on a real intense search for the basis for hope. In August of 2005, at the age of 22, after years and years of searching, and I mean intense researching, and experiencing even some supernatural dreams, and I'm a little skeptical about supernatural dreams, but in this case, having read this book, I believe that it really did happen. As a result of all of the sequence of events, Nabil actually came to Jesus at great cost. He loved his parents, but that was the end. They excommunicated him. It was the hardest day of his life, he says. He said, I'm a mama's boy. Uh, He loved his mother, and no longer could they communicate. Today he is a medical doctor, and he's a speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Some of you have heard him talk. You can YouTube Nabil Qureshi. He's in Oxford right now pursuing his PhD, he already has an MD, you can tell how brilliant he is. Earlier this year, Nabil Qureshi published a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. If you haven't heard about this book, you will. Well, you just have. But you're going to hear a lot more about it. Uh, On Amazon.com, if a book gets 100 reviews or 200 reviews, that's pretty impressive. So far, this book, which is published this year, has already, as of two to three days ago when I last looked, uh, had over 900 reviews. And it's maintaining a five star out of five star rating almost unheard of. I don't think one person of the 900 has rated it less than a four-star rating. Almost unbelievable. You need to read it. It should be on your bucket list for the long winter days ahead. If you have never read this book, that's a book you need to read. It will teach you about Islam, which we should know about, if Muslims are gonna be one out of every five people in this world by the year 2030, and there's a lot of Muslims living near you or working with you, I'm sure. Uh, you need to understand more about Islam than you, really, than you already do. And this book will teach you that, but in a friendly way, because it's all in a narrative form. The reason I'm telling you this story and mentioning this is because it will show you the power of God through effective Christian apologetics. That's exactly what happened with David Wood, and he called in a couple of his friends who happened to be... Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona, who are some of the great apologists of our time. And, uh, and, and God used all of this to bring Nabil to himself. Now, having said all of that, I want to provide you with one final insight from our text. I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but Peter says here in verse 15 that we're to be prepared with all of our answers and ready with our defense, apologia, whenever people ask us for not a defense, interestingly enough, not an answer, not an apologia. We're to be ready with an apologia, but that's not what they come asking us for. They come asking us for a logos, if you look at this carefully. They're not asking us for a formal defense of our faith. Most people aren't going to walk up to you and say, would you please give me a formal defense of the Christian faith? Aren't you glad that's true? But if people happen to notice and be impressed by your joyful hope in dark and troubled times when you're going through a crisis, if they see some difference, if they see that you're hanging in there and hopeful in the midst of difficult times, then they very well might ask you to explain your hope. in which which case Peter says that you should be prepared to cite good, solid evidence for why your hope is well-grounded, not just pie in the sky. The the point is, 1 Peter 3.15 doesn't say what a lot of people think it says. Be prepared when people ask you for a formal defense of your faith. That's not what it says. It says when people ask you for a word, logos, or an account of your hope, then be ready to show them that it's not Speculation, it's expectation, realistic expectation. By the way, does anyone ever ask you about your hope? Does that happen to you on a regular basis? Because if no one's ever asking you about your hope, I don't know, maybe it's because they're not seeing hope in you or in your countenance or in your smile or in your optimism or in your courage or in your kindness. But maybe they are, seeing that in you, and maybe the subject just hasn't come up. In which case, maybe you need to bring it up. That's the other way of having this all happen. Um, have you ever just asked anyone about their hope? Taking the initiative here? Everyone needs hope, you know, everyone. If a man loses hope, he's in big trouble. So why don't you um, be bold this week? and get into some conversation with someone that you do not know to be a believer, and ask them about their hope. Then they might ask you about your hope. Why not start a conversation about hope? Why not pray that God would help you to start a conversation about hope? And then you press the button. Uh, you know, you can just say, uh, Who do you know that's the most hopeful person? Who do you admire who is very hopeful and optimistic in life? Are you hopeful about the future? Can I share with you why I'm hopeful about the future, no matter what happens with the terrorists or with Ebola? Can I tell you the basis for my hope? Two nights before Christmas 2007, I was watching 60 Minutes Steve Croft was interviewing Tom Brady, and at that time, Tom Brady, the superstar quarterback of of our New England Patriots, was just about 30 years old in his prime. Some of us think he's still in his prime, even if he has a bad game or two. But uh, at that point, 30 years old, Tom Brady had surely did have everything, just almost everything going for him that anyone would think of as great. Uh, He knew that, and in this interview he was openly acknowledging it. He had fame, his health, his money, his good looks, his success, three Super Bowl rings. Uh, One of the world's most beautiful models, Giselle, at that point was, beside him, his girlfriend now, she's his wife. And so at one point in this interview, uh, Tom Brady just sort of of screws up his face, and he says to Steve Croft that in spite of all of this, he sometimes finds himself thinking, is this all there is? God, he says, there's got to be more than this. Those were his words. Quote, God, there's got to be more than this, I think, sometimes. Steve Croft said, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He repeated it just like that. I've watched that interview over and over, recorded it. You know what I think? Far more people than you or I ever realize, would ever normally realize are wondering that same thing and searching for authentic hope or a basis for hope in life that we meet this week. It's like an invisible sign hanging around the neck of a lot of the people that you're going to see. They're looking for a basis for hope. So get ready. Be prepared. Get ready with some good evidence about why your hope is realistic. Get set. Or better yet, ask God to get you set, set you up with a conversation. Get ready, get set, go. Talk about hope with someone, real hope in Jesus. Uh, Thanks for the privilege. Thanks for entrusting the pulpit to me this morning, Pastor Tim. Thanks for the privilege of looking at God's word of truth this morning together. And uh, thanks for allowing us to be in the middle of a good arrangement where You stand by us in our work for Jesus. Let me lead us in a closing prayer. Yes, Lord, you are our hope and our stay. When all around us things seem to give way, remind us that you are there and that you are a solid rock. Thank you for the blessed hope of your soon return. Forgive us when we get distracted. Help us to focus on being prepared. And do set us up with some conversations this week. I pray that you would sovereignly, divinely arrange some exchanges that would lead to a discussion of hope and an opportunity for us to share the basis for our hope in you, Thank you for my brothers and sisters and each of these faithful friends and others who are visiting this morning who have been a part of the ministry to which you've called us. And I thank you this morning, Lord, for helping me through this message in spite of the circumstances this morning, the headache and all the rest. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.